Uh, Josh mentioned that we are in a non-heretical sermon series right now uh, entitled, Jesus is Not Part of My Life. Uh, and strange title, I know, uh, but one of the things that I've been really encouraged by is the stories that I'm already hearing over the past uh, few weeks of doing this is, wow, I thought Jesus was supposed to be part of my life, uh, but I'm discovering that he's not supposed to be a part or a piece of my life. Uh, he's meant to be all of my life. And that's the journey that we've been on over these past four weeks, or this is week number four. Uh, last week, we talked about what I call the tricky subject of Jesus is not part of my mind or part of my thoughts. Uh, and we examine what does it actually look like to have Jesus informing, forming all of what we think about. Uh, this morning, I think this is even a trickier topic, uh, and it's the heart. And so the message is just titled, Jesus is not part of my heart. Uh, and just to be clear, when I'm talking about the heart, I'm not talking about the 10-ounce organ in your chest. Uh, what I am talking about when I say heart uh, is the Bible teaches that the heart is the core of who you are. If you want to know who you are, you look at your heart. Uh, the heart is the place where God reveals himself to us. It's our emotions, our will, our passions, our personality, our spirituality. Uh, the heart becomes the dwelling place of faith, hope. Uh, and love. And so the heart is your core, uh, who you are. And so this is why scripture in Proverbs verse four, uh, chapter four, verse 23 says, guard your heart above all else. Guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. That's pretty significant. And that's why scripture, not just here, but talks about the importance of your heart, your heart before God, your heart before people, Guard your heart above everything else that you would do, for it's going to determine the course of your life. So our inner life, our heart, what's happening in our heart shapes the exterior, not the other way around. Uh, I'd be clear on that. We often think about our exterior life and trying to fix and trying to mend and trying to reorchestrate what the exterior aspect of our life looks like, when in reality... Rather than trying to change the exterior, rather than hoping circumstances change or external things, uh, what the Bible teaches is you need to look at your heart. Uh, what is needed is not an exterior change, but an inner change, uh, a heart surgery uh, of sorts. I wrote it down in my journal this week like this, transform the heart of a man and you will transform the whole man. If you transform the heart of a man or transform the heart of a woman, transformation of the whole person that whole man, that whole woman will follow. And so this morning, this is, it's a big, big subject of the heart and how do we understand the heart. Um, but again, if you want to understand who you are, look at the heart. Proverbs 27 says this, as water reflects a face, so a man's heart reflects the man. Okay, so that's a challenging one. As water reflects a face, you look in water, you see your face, you get that metaphor uh, if you want to see what a man looks like, see who a man is, well, look at the heart. So a man's heart reflects the face. This is challenging to me, and I think probably to most of us, is we often, uh, if we don't like the reflection, we'll say, well, it's because of this. Uh, if we don't like what we see in our reflection, well, if that wouldn't have happened, if they didn't say that, or if they didn't do this, uh, but what scripture teaches, if you don't like the reflection that you see, it's not someone else, it's the heart issue. And you have to look closely, deeply at 
the matters of uh, the heart. Now, if the heart reveals the person, then what does your heart reveal about you today? Not tomorrow, not what you hope your heart will reveal about you at some point, but today, just as you're here, where you are in this moment, if heart reveals the person, then what does your heart currently reveal about you? Again, I'm not asking you to answer this question out loud, so just if you've got a journal or a note card, write down what is it that my heart is revealing about who I am. Now, for me, a majority of my life, I did not like the reflection that I saw, could not stand the reflection that I saw. Uh, and so one of two things happened, and these two things are kind of the same, same coin, just different, different sides, heads and tails. Because I did not like the reflection I saw, one of the things that I did is I just wore masks. I figured if I did not like what I saw, then I'll just pretend to be somebody else. And I got really good at it. I didn't have like one mask. I had dozens and dozens of masks just depending on where I was and who I was with because I didn't like the reflection. Uh, and rather than doing heart surgery, um, I wore masks, just tried, tried to hide. Uh, and the second thing I would do when I would get tired of masks is I would just isolate. I did not like uh, what I saw in the reflection, uh, and so I would just hide. I assume if I didn't like it, clearly no one else is going to like it, and I don't really want anyone else to know what I'm really like and who I'm like, so I'm just going to isolate. I'm going to go my own thing, and you know, I could still be around community, but no one in community is actually going to know who I am. So I could wear the mask, I could smile, I could have the appearance, but inwardly I was isolating. So those were two things that I did when I didn't like my reflection. And as I've looked back on that and considered that, the reason I didn't like my reflection is very simple. Well, because Jesus was still part of my heart. He was still very much part of my heart. And if Jesus is just part of your heart, you will not like the reflection that you see. But really the amazing truth that I want us to grasp today uh, is that if you're a Christian, if you've made the decision to follow Jesus, whether that was a week ago, 10 years ago, 50 years ago, if you've made the decision to say, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ, well, the good news for you is simply this. You've already been given the heart of Christ. You don't have to figure out, well, how do I fix my heart? How do I get this, this heart better? Is No, if you're a Christian, you have been given the heart of of Christ. Not a piece of his heart, not a part of his heart. It says this in uh, Galatians, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Isn't that amazing? It doesn't, like, not part of Christ lives in you. If you're a Christian, then Christ dwells in you, meaning you have the entire heart of Christ, not just a refurbished version of your old heart, but you have the heart of Christ. Now, that's a true statement, but often we know things to be true, but it doesn't always translate into how I actually live. So I'm going to guess for many people, you're like, yeah, I've heard that before. I, I, I know that. That's not like new revelation. That's not new anything. But my challenge, my struggle, and I think for many people, it is this way as well, of living our lives in, in light of what we actually know is challenging. It's one thing to say, I know that to be true, but if we really knew that to be true, that I have the heart of Christ, 
I'm not trying to achieve it or get it. I already have it. Well, then our lives, specifically our hearts, will look dramatically different. So a question I would ask for you this morning is, today, what is the condition of your heart? What words, what adjectives would you say describe the condition of your heart? And remember, the condition of your heart is really determining really what life looks like. So would you use adjectives like broken or shattered or divided or fearful or anxious or worried or angry or lusting or just heavy, covetous or joyful or grateful or just, you can't even think of an adjective, so it's just blah. I feel numb. I don't really feel much of anything. So how would you describe in words what the condition of your heart is? And I know for maybe many, if not a lot of us, we would say, I can't even fathom a life where I would use anything other than those words, broken, shattered, heavy, hurting, divided, fearful, anxious, worried, to describe the condition of my heart. Well, let me just ask this question then. How would you describe the condition of Jesus' heart? Would you use adjectives like broken and divided and shattered and fearful and anxious and worry and bitter and angry? Or would you just use an adjective in Jesus' heart was filled, it was filled, filled with peace, filled with joy, it was content. And so here's the challenge. If it's true that you as a Christian have the heart of Christ, then when asked, how do you describe the condition of our heart? Well, we can say, I have the heart of Christ and my heart's filled. Now, again, I realize many of us wouldn't use those words right now. So what I'm hoping to talk about this morning is how do you cultivate that which has already been given to you? Like, I would be very bummed if you left here this morning, like, all right, I realize my heart's not in a great place, and it's kind of broken and busted, and I don't like that anymore, and I, I realize that's impacting my life. I'm just going to have to work harder to kind of clean up my heart, and I'm going to have to work harder and strive and do all of these things when I just, I want you to know, you don't have to. You've already been given the heart of Christ. You have the heart of Christ. It's not something you earn or get like when you get really spiritually mature. You have the heart of Christ the moment you say, Christ, you're God. I trust you. And so my hope this morning is simply, how do you cultivate the heart that you have already been given? Now, as I consider the world we live in, namely the people around me, I'm convinced that people need less and less of my heart, and they need to see and hear and feel the heart of Christ to those, uh, to those who say they follow Christ. People don't need more of my heart. What they need is more of the heart of Christ. And so how do we cultivate the heart that has already been given to us? Now, as I've done in weeks past, what I wanted to start with before I answer that question is share some convictions. These are not just observations, just random observations about the human heart. These are convictions that, that I have about my heart. Uh, now, some of these might not ring completely true with you, but I share these as these are my convictions about my heart, uh, and as I'm understanding, and I've got a long way to go, but as I'm understanding my heart, uh, these convictions have been helping to shape and cultivate living with the heart that Christ has given me. So conviction number one is this, your heart, apart from God, will always be restless. Your heart apart from God, will always be restless. Now, for years, I felt the emptiness. I did. I felt the emptiness. And so I tried to fill the emptiness in my heart 
uh, with all this exterior things. And for me, it was primarily two things. It was my sport and it was relationships with women. That's what I sought to fill the emptiness that I felt, that I couldn't get to go away. And the harder I tried to fill it with exterior things, the greater the emptiness actually felt. You might be familiar with um, uh, Blaise Pascal and C.S. Lewis, but in commenting on the condition of the human heart, they both said very similar things. Blaise Pascal said this, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man, which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the creator made known through Jesus. You got a hole in your heart, and no matter what you put in that hole, relationships or whatever it might be for you, uh, it's not going to fill it. No matter how hard you try, it won't fill it. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said very similar thing, but these are all inadequate Because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object, that is to say, only by God himself. So I believe, my conviction is that my heart, apart from God, is always going to be restless. If I'm convinced of that, and that's my conviction, then I'll stop running to or chasing after other things, trying to fill that emptiness with things that I know don't work. I think one of the, the challenges uh, is we often look around, okay? We often look around at other people and look at what they have, and we think to ourselves, our hearts say, gosh, they have it so easy. If I could, I mean, they have the money. If I could just have the money that they had, I, so much of my life would be worked out. So much of my problems and all of these things would be worked out if I just had what they had. They have the relationship that I don't have, but I really want. Or they have the type of relationship in their marriage that I don't have, but I really want to have. And so part of our problem is we're always looking to other people for what they have and what we don't have. And we think if we have that, somehow my heart will be at rest. And I love how the psalmist says in Psalm 49, do not be overawed when others grow rich, when the splendor of their houses increase. For they will take nothing with them when they die. Their splendor will not descend with them. That's a really challenging psalm. Stop looking at other people for what you think, if you had that, is going to take away the restlessness you feel in your heart, Michael. Stop trying to fill it with other things. So my conviction is my heart, your heart, apart from God, will always be restless. Knowing that uh, really helps me to stop chasing lesser things. And knowing that also encourages me and it helps me realize that what people need most uh, is God. It helps me understand when I see people and I'm like, yeah, they look like they have everything together. But if they don't know God, they have nothing. Even if exterior says they do, if I'm convinced that the heart apart from God is restless, then I can, what they need most is, is God. Second conviction that I would share with you is this. Your heart is more deceitful than you'd care to admit. Your heart is more deceitful than you care to admit. I'm sure you've heard the advice, and I'm sure maybe at some point in your life you passed along the advice that sounded something like this. Someone sharing a story with you or a decision that they need to make 
and you look at them with love and affection, you're like, hey, just follow your heart. Just so you know, that's bad advice. Don't ever encourage someone to follow your heart because scripture reminds us over and over and over again, our heart is really deceitful. Our heart tricks. Our heart deceives us. Uh, And I would say our hearts sometimes are so deceitful that I'm often led to think and led to believe in my heart, yeah, but that's the heart of God. That's, That's what's happening. And we have a difficult time differentiating between what is my heart and what is actually the heart of God. Jeremiah says it like this, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? Okay, wow. Now, that's not saying that the heart is not capable of doing good things or believing good things, but what it's saying is our hearts are so powerful that it can easily and often and quickly deceive us. Again, not saying it's not possible for your heart to do good, but what people need is not to follow their heart. What people need to do is follow the heart of God. So that's a second conviction that I have is my heart is more deceitful than I would ever care to admit. I'm encouraged by this, but I'm going to be honest with you. People are like, Michael, we're so thankful that you so openly and willingly share your heart. I'm so, I'm so thankful that you're like, man, if you could see my heart. And people are like, well, more of your heart. I'm like, you really don't know what goes on sometimes in this heart. But I'm thankful. I'm not discouraged by that. I'm encouraged to say, you know what? But I have the heart of Christ. Why? Because Christ lives within me. But I also know that my heart can be really, really deceptive. That's my second conviction. My third conviction, I'll finish with this one, is your heart is impacting your vertical and your horizontal more than you know. Your heart is impacting right now, today, your vertical and your horizontal more than you know. Simply put, your heart is impacting your ability to walk with God and to relate with or walk with those around you. Let's start with the vertical. What I mean by that is my heart can be very condemning. So whatever I might do, whatever I might, whatever the sin might be, my heart just condemns me. See, you're worthless. You're no good. You failed again. You fell over again. And what my heart, because it's condemning me, now my deceitful heart is just saying, yeah, you know what? You need to start working harder. You need to start trying harder. You need to do whatever you have to do to get back in good with God. That's what my heart is screaming at me. And so if I'm walking around feeling like my heart is condemning me, it is impacting my vertical. It's impacting my ability to relate with and connect with God. Because when my heart is condemning me, saying work, 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 perform, 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 well, there's now a big wall between me and God because God's like, you don't need to. Why do you keep trying to perform? You're not condemned. You're forgiven. So let's chop, get rid of this wall. So that's how the vertical is impacted. Let's talk about the horizontal. This is what happens. And again, I'm just being honest with you. When my heart gets hurt, I'm just going to ask you this in advance. What happens to your heart? But when my heart gets hurt because someone rejected, someone I felt like maybe misrepresented me, uh, someone said things that were just harsh or cruel or whatever it is, when that happens... I would love to stand here before you and tell you 
my heart is like, oh, I just love you. I'm, I'm just so thankful that you're in my life. My heart, you know what my heart says? Bye-bye. Peace out to you. I'll be able to smile at you and look like we're good, but my heart, when it gets hurt, it shuts down and it shuts out. So my conviction is my heart is impacting me, your heart impacting you more than you probably realize. It impacts our relationship with God. It impacts our relationships with one another. So I've asked this question, but let's look at it again. How is your heart today impacting or influencing your vertical and your horizontal? Because it's impacting it. So how is it impacting it? Are there things that your heart are believing to be true that are just not true that's got a wall between you and God? Has your heart shut down with people and you put a wall up between other people because you too got hurt? See, your heart, it's impacting a lot more than we often care to admit. This is why in Scripture, I'm just going to read two verses. King David said to be a man after God's own heart, but yet King David prays in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart. God, because you know my heart and I'm learning my heart and it's messy. So God, would you create in me what I could never create in myself? Would you create in me a clean heart? And we're talking clean, we're talking pure. God, would you give me a pure and a right and a righteous heart? King David goes on later in Psalm 86, give me an undivided heart. God, because my heart is all over the place. It's divided like I really love you, but I really love these things. Or I really want to do these things. I really love myself. So David says, give me an undivided heart. So it's just how is your heart impacting your vertical and your horizontal today? Now, those are just a few convictions that I have about my heart, but these convictions have helped shape my understanding of how do I cultivate the heart that Christ has already given me? And I tell you this again, Christ lives in you. You have the heart of Christ. You don't have to work for it or earn it. You have it. So how do you cultivate that? Those convictions have helped me, but I'm going to share with you some things that have helped me cultivate the heart that Christ has already given me, namely his heart. So this might go without saying, but if you really want to know how to cultivate the heart of Christ, well, you've got to spend time with Christ. Spend time with Christ, like spend, love the gospel, spend time in the gospels, reading the gospels, and watch how Jesus treated people, how he cared for people, how he loved people. Um, but here are three things that have been helpful to me in cultivating the heart that's already within. Number one would be this, uh, a heart to serve. A heart to serve. Wherever Jesus was, his heart, which dictated his life, was serving people. Serving all people, not just some people, but serving all people. I'm going to pick on one example or use one example uh, towards the end of Jesus' life. Uh, and this is in John chapter 13, but it says this. This is Jesus is about to go to the cross, be betrayed, uh, and this is what Jesus does. Before the Passover celebration, he's having dinner uh, with his disciples. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that the hour had come to leave this world and return to his father. And he loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and that the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And listen to verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything. Over everything, Jesus had the authority. 
and that he had come from God and would return to God. And so with the authority that he knows he has, what does he do with this authority? And so he got up from the table, he took off his robe, and he wrapped a towel around his waist, and he poured water into a basin, and then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel he had around him. The heart of Jesus, seen in John 13, is really twofold. Jesus was willing to do what no one else was apparently willing to do. The one who had the most authority over everything said, I'm going to use the authority that I have to actually get up from the table, take the robe off, get down on my knees, and put your feet in my hands and wash them, and then take the towel and dry them. Willing to do what no one else was willing to do, wash feet, and then secondly, he washed the feet of those who would soon betray him, deny him, and desert him. Can you imagine that? If you knew that someone was going to totally just crush you, throw you under the bus, if you knew that someone was going to reject you, if you knew that someone was going to say things about you that were hard and hurtful and devastating, what are the chances that your heart would say, yes, get down on your knee, put their feet in your hand, and wash their feet and care for them? Jesus knew exactly what these men were going to do. He knew that Peter was going to deny him. He knew that P Judas would betray him. And he knew ultimately that all the disciples would completely desert him. But the heart of Jesus did not look at that job or the people involved and say, no way. He looked at these men and said, it's my joy. I will serve you in this way. I will serve you in this capacity. Now, if Jesus is part of your heart, like he has some of it, He's got a piece of your heart. You will probably serve people. But what you're going to do is you'll most likely serve people in order to get something from people. Because if Jesus has part of your heart, you're still looking to, how do I fill this gap? And so you'll serve, but you'll serve in order to get something from those people. Whether it's honestly just feeling good about yourself. I feel really good that I did something nice or kind or generous Ultimately, you use that person that you are serving to get something for yourself. That's if Jesus is part of your heart. But if Jesus is your heart, you have the heart of Christ, you know what you do? You serve people no longer to get something from them because you already have everything. You don't need anything from them. You serve them because this is what Christ has done for you. He has served us. And it totally changes how we serve. In John 13, the end of the story... It says this, and since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done. So if you'd cultivate the heart of Christ that's already in you, well, it's going to be a heart that's going to serve. And the more you serve and see yourself as a servant, well, guess what's growing in you? The heart of Christ. Bob Goff wrote a great book called Love Does, and he says this, love is never stationary. In the end, love doesn't just keep thinking about it or keep planning for it. Simply put, love does. There's a lot of folks who are like, yeah, I, I want to do these things. I'm thinking about it, and I'm planning on doing it. But at the end, nothing ever happens. Because often what prevents us from doing the things that we think we want to do is a heart that says, yeah, but they don't deserve it. Yeah, that person's not going to appreciate this. 
yeah, I remember what that person once said about me, and so I know I would like to do this. I know I want to serve, but something in my heart shuts it down. Where I love the simplicity, love is never stationary. Jesus, reclining at the table, gets up. And he does what no one else is willing to do for men who are going to deny him, betray him, and ultimately desert him. So if you are a follower of Jesus, you've been given the heart of Jesus, which means you've been given the heart to serve. Every Christian serves. I love having this conversation when people are like, hey, Mike, I've been praying, been coming, and you know, I've been praying about serving. I'm like, all right, well, let's stop right there. You don't need to pray about it. I'm pretty confident if you're praying, God, should I serve? He's going to say yes. He will always say yes. Why? Well, because we've been given the heart of Christ, and Christ's heart serves all people. And well, okay, okay, I get that. That's fine. Should have known that, but all right. And then the next question is, well, all right, well, I guess I'll, I'll serve, but I'm going to just, I got to take my time, and I got to thoughtfully kind of think through where I should actually be serving, because I really want my service to match what I'm good at, and I want my service to match my gifts. I'm like, all right, well, do you think Jesus had like a degree in foot washing? Do you think like Jesus was the most exceptionally talented, gifted person in the room, and everyone else is like, I just, I can't wash feet. I'm not good at that. What do I do? There's 10 toes, and what if there's only like two missing? Then what do I do? That's going to mess everything up. Or do you think Jesus was like, and what, and what did John refer? And since I, your Lord and your teacher, the most gifted, qualified person in that space at that moment was Jesus, and he says, I will get down on my knee. Not because I'm exceptionally good at washing people's feet, because that's what I do. I serve. So rather than waiting to figure out, is there going to be a burning bush that says serve? Or rather than waiting to say, well, I really want my service to match my gifts and my talents and my abilities, why not just say, you know what? Jesus has served, and that's what I do. It, just, it doesn't matter where I do it or how I do it. I will, I'm just going to err on the side of serving where Jesus is going to have to stop me and say, hey, hold on. What I love about what I see happening, what I'm inspired by, encouraged by, so many men and women in this community are men and women who are just willing to serve. I love seeing the men and women that are stepping up, and we need more, but are stepping up to serve in Genesis kids. I love when I see men specifically say, I will go love those kids. I'm not even really good with kids. I'm not even sure if I like kids, but... I want to help care for kids. If by serving and just doing something back there with those kids on a Sunday morning for an hour and a half would help them know who Jesus is, how could I not? I love our facilities team. I love that there are men and women on our facilities team, three or four, who have PhDs. And not in like facilities management. But I love that there are men and women who you would think from the outside would say, uh, facilities? Can't you give me like a teaching role or can't you give me something a little bit more glorious than pushing a vacuum and cleaning a bathroom? But I, I love, but Jesus has served me. How could I not be a servant? Yeah, I might have different skills, but I can serve in this way. I can serve in this capacity. So my invitation, my challenge 
is if you're going to grow and cultivate the heart that's already in you, start serving. And I'm not talking about like once a week so you can check off that box. Start there, but start serving every day. Every moment you have with the people you work with, the people you're in school with, is an opportunity. God, how can I serve these people today? How can I serve these men and women in practical, foot-washing, tangible ways? The second way that I'm learning and growing to cultivate the heart that's already in me is having a heart for the lost. Having a heart for the lost. And I know sometimes people are like, that's, is that a derogatory term? It's like, what do you mean when you describe someone as lost? Well, I shared with you my conviction that a heart apart from God is restless. So if you believe that the heart is restless apart from God, then those that don't know who God is remain lost looking for that which will fill their heart. And so Jesus had a heart for those who did not know God. Jesus was accused of being friends with people who you think he was not supposed to be friends with. And Matthew The son of man, on the other hand, feasts and he drinks and and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. And in other verses, it's clear, Jesus came for the sick, not for the healthy, he came for the sick. He came for those who are lost. Uh, a, A great, helpful, challenging book by Philip Yancey called What's So Amazing About Grace He opens with a story about this woman who had come from prostitution. And the person telling the story just says, hey, have you ever thought of going to church? And she looked at him perplexed. I already feel terrible about myself. Why would I go to church? Like, why, if I already feel this way about myself, if my heart already is condemning me for what I've done, why on earth would I go hang out with a bunch of Jesus followers? And he says this in uh, What's So Amazing About Grace The worse a person felt about themselves, the more likely they saw Jesus as a refuge. Has the church lost this gift? Evidently, the down and out who flocked to Jesus when he lived on earth no longer feel welcome among his followers. What's happened? Like, what what happened to us? What happened to the church? And I don't just mean Genesis, just what happened to men and women who say, I'm a follower of Christ? But yet the people who don't know Christ want nothing to do because there's just condemnation and shame and guilt. Jesus had a heart for the lost. Paul, a man who once hated Christians and and Christ, Paul had a tremendous heart for the lost. He was willing, he says, willing to give away his eternity if it meant some others would actually come to know Jesus. He says in Romans, My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. So Paul is not confused like theologically. He knows he can't switch places with somebody. Jesus has already done that. But what he's saying is my heart breaks for the men and women in my life who don't know the amazing grace of Jesus. And if it meant that I would be cursed, that one person would come to a relationship, I I would do it. If you'd cultivate the heart that's already in you, you'd have a growing heart for the lost, those who don't know Jesus. So do you today have a heart for those who just don't know Jesus? 
And I know some people are like, Michael, I'm just not an evangelist. I can't easily and readily and quickly just talk about my faith. It's challenging. It's difficult. I understand that. I understand when I'm talking to someone and something weird is happening in my throat and my heart's like, gosh, why am I getting all these weird, like, why is it so hard to talk about the very thing I love? So I get that. So how I often view my life is plant seeds and build bridges. Plant seeds, knowing that maybe something I say will plant a seed and hopefully someone else has planted a seed and it's going to become, begin to take root. And I build bridges. Maybe someone is here and they have no idea about how to even begin that relationship. So you just begin to build a bridge and you walk with them over that bridge. I love Spurgeon, how he said this, to be a soul winner is the happiest thing in this world. And with every soul you bring to Jesus, you seem to get a new heaven here upon earth. I just, I'm convinced of that. And I can testify there is no more happier thing than seeing a soul changed for eternity. There's no happier thing than seeing a soul who did not know who God was come to say, God is amazing. I can't believe he's done this for me. So if you cultivate the heart that God has given you, that Christ has given you, it's going to be developing a heart for the lost. And just, I guess, practically, hopefully uh, practically, do you know that every person that is in your life that does not know who God is, does not know, the reason that you are in their life is so you can plant seeds and build bridges. So that should change everything. That should change every time you go into work. Every moment you are conversing with someone is an opportunity to plant a seed to build a bridge. So rather than work being this boring, mundane, I don't like my job, it should change like I'm excited to see the people. Another day, another moment, another conversation, another opportunity to plant a seed, to build a bridge. And I'm not talking about being rude and obnoxious and screaming like, hey, you're going to hell. But what I am, every moment, every conversation, every time I go to the grocery store, it's an opportunity to plant a seed, to build a bridge. And just talking to the person who's checking me out. Every conversation I have with anybody is an opportunity to plant seeds to build bridges. The third and final thing, we finish with this. You're going to have a servant's heart. You're going to have a heart for the lost. And then finally, if you cultivate the heart of Christ that's already in you, it's going to be a heart of grace. It's going to be a heart of grace. And I think, I'm just being honest, this is probably the hardest one for me, at least the slowest for my heart to catch up to this one. For my heart to be able to say to people that have either hurt me or wounded me, I forgive you. I forgive you. I will no longer define you by what you've done to me. I will define you by the same grace that's been extended to me. I won't hold you in that box anymore that's kept us down, that's kept this relationship down. I just, I forgive. I forgive. Uh, Jesus. There was too many examples to share of him being merciful and being forgiving and being gracious. But one that has always amazed me is the same night that Jesus is breaking bread with his disciples, night before he's going to be crucified and killed, he looks to his disciples sitting around the table and he says, hey, one of you here is going to betray me. And this is the response from the disciples. 
the disciples began to ask each other, which of them would ever do such a thing? You would think that, like, Peter would be, he always talks first. You would think Peter would be like, it's totally Judas. I know it's Judas. Like, guys, let's put money on it's Judas. Like, I've been watching, and Jesus totally treats Judas differently. Like, I, he actually, we think he ignores him sometimes because he just doesn't like the guy. You think John would have jumped up and be like, my money is totally on Judas as well. But they looked at each other and said, who? Which one of us? How, how could this be? There wasn't one in the circle who said, it's him. Why? Well, because Jesus didn't treat, treat Judas any differently than he did the other guys. Jesus, knowing that Judas would betray him. Jesus, knowing that Judas would totally sell him out. Still was gracious to him. Still was loving to him. He didn't change or didn't treat Judas any differently with the knowledge that he had. So my question is, is there anyone in your life that you treat differently because your heart is being guided by past pains, hurts, disappointments, and frustrations? Is there anyone? Maybe it's in your family. Maybe it's someone in this church. Maybe it's someone at your workplace. Somebody. Are there people that you treat differently because your heart just says, I can't be gracious to them. You don't know what they've done. And you're right, I don't know what they've done, but I do know what Jesus has done for you. And I do know what Jesus has done for me. You have the heart of Christ. You don't have to like go searching for it. You don't have to like work much harder. Or you don't have to do any. You already have it. If you're a Christian today, if you are a follower of Jesus, the good news is you've been given the heart of Christ, Colossians, and this is the secret or the mystery. Christ lives in you. The heart of Christ already lives in you. So we cultivate that which we've already been given. We cultivate it by having a heart to serve, a heart for the lost, and a heart of grace. 